Hey there. Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Jake, what is on the docket today? We've got a review of John Carpenter's final film, 2010's The Ward. Plus, I've got a pick for the perfect beer to pair with The Ward, and we've both got something you should definitely check out in Really Red Recommendations. But first... Hey, Jake. Hey, Chris. What's going on? Not much. This is the last John Carpenter film. It is. We've, and we've, as we've said in the past, we've still got a little more to discuss uh, somewhere in the future, but this is closing the books on the Carpenter shop proper, which is a little sad. It's, and, you know, I, I think we should address the fact that uh, much like John Carpenter, we took a bit of a hiatus between Ghosts of Mars and (laughs) The Ward. But, uh, you know, between Christmas and the new year and jobs and stuff, it's been, uh, it's been a little, little crazy, but it feels good to be back. It, it, it really does. But I'm, I'm just, I'm still just a, a little sad that this is the last one. I, I just keep wondering if he has like a, a, a some kind of a scary movie in the can to just like drop on us at, at the last minute. We think it's over. We think this is it. And he's just going to drop a, uh, a secret movie on us. The 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 4K restoration of is it Gorgo versus Godzilla? Was that <laughs> yes? The, uh, maybe yes. Maybe. You think it's over. You think it's done. You think you're safe, and then one more. Yeah, <laughs> secret homemade garage Godzilla movie. Well, I I don't think we're gonna get that. You know, just because of John Carpenter. Uh, it, it seems like he's very content with not making movies anymore. It it just takes a little too much out of him. Uh, but hear me out. I have an idea. All right. What would you say to, uh, after we properly wrap this uh, lovely little series that I've had a whole lot of fun uh, working on? I don't know about you. Um, what would you say that we change pace a little bit? And instead of talking about one wonderful auteur, we discuss two. Okay. I'm listening. Uh, and really the only major thing connecting them is they share a last name. Okay. I'm not following. Okay. Well, let me give you the title. All right. I think we call it the Magnificent Andersons. Ooh, I like this, but who are we going to pair with visionary auteur Paul W.S. Anderson? (laughs) Uh, this is just too silly. No, obviously we're, (laughs) we're not, we're not discussing, uh, the, the man behind all of the, is it Underworld? Is that what he's known for? It's Resident Evil, but I'm not sure that that's different than Underworld. So close enough. Close enough. Um, and I think the Three Musketeers 3D movie, I think he did that one, that as well. Almost, almost positive. I guess we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we don't no. Obviously, we are discussing uh we're gonna go chronologically through the films of Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. I'm in under one condition. Can we talk about Darjeeling Limited again? We can. Uh we absolutely can. Yes. We have some uh fun stuff planned for this. We're still sort of in the in the works of nailing down exactly what the format's gonna be, but I think it's gonna be a whole lot of fun. A plan is to sort of go back and forth between them, and I'm very interested to discuss 
sort of the rises and falls of their careers and the trajectory because you know they started about the same time and i they've both somehow stayed in their lanes as far as not getting stuck in big hollywood films and still being able to make the films that they really want to make i i think it'll be a lot of fun to explore and i'm excited to try to my main goal of this honestly is to try to bring you around to pt anderson not just in a like i understand he's great but like maybe finding a little more to uh to love about him than than you have in the past good luck <laughs> this will be work that being said I, I will say this um all kidding aside i love the uh john carpenter focus on a director and learning them over time watching the film seeing how they evolve seeing all those connections um, I'm looking forward to doing it with these with, with PT Anderson and and Wes Anderson because both of them are great directors. I'm aware of that, and you do learn way more, um, or it makes you appreciate them even more when you really focus in and hone in on their films and watch them. Yeah, I've really appreciated that with uh, with the Carpenter Shop. It's you know this was sort of a what if idea that you came up with initially and I was skeptical as to whether or not it would work. I'm really happy that we did this. There's a lot of stuff that even if I would have casually kind of caught up with all of Carpenter stuff, I would not have dug into without um, this format. So I'm very happy and excited to do that with a couple of directors that I already know and love quite a bit, but um, I'm sure there's going to be some, some great gems and, and other Dark things that we, Darjeeling Limited that that we uh, uncover along the way or or notice or uh, that sort of thing because I I think you know really going chronologically and then and then taking that kind of fine tooth comb through um, through Carpenter's films it's made me admire things that I I think just alone if I was just like putting on a movie on a Saturday afternoon may not have uh, I may have been more uh, blasé about or more. You know, like vampires, I would not have enjoyed at all, perhaps. And uh, I had a couple nice things to say about vampires. And The Ward, uh, a movie that I have plenty of things to say about, is not something I ever would have ever selected to watch. Yeah. And I definitely wouldn't have treated it um, with the uh, level of attention that I gave it when watching it for this. And just being able to um, go that deep into one director's work is really, really rewarding. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Well, let's get into it. I'm excited to talk about it, too. Let's discuss the ward right now. What's your name? Kristen. Welcome to the ward, your new home. Why am I here? You can't get them to tell you anything. Sometimes they take people away and they don't come back. If I were you, I'd watch out, new girl. There's a ghost in here. I'm sure you believe you saw what you say. I'm not crazy. She's the last one that got out. She was one of us, but she's gone now. And now she's going to kill us all. You've got to deal with them. We have to get out of here. 
All right, Jake. So I I don't know exactly where you stood on the ward. I had seen the cover like back in my days of working at Best Buy and stocking the horror movies. And that was about the extent of my knowledge of it. Um, I, I didn't know much. And so I didn't know what to expect going into this movie. Let me just very quickly, and I, I imagine this is where a lot of people are. It's like, maybe you've heard John Carpenter made this movie in 2010. You probably didn't see it. Judging by box office, you didn't see it. I mean, this movie was made on 10 million and made, it was something like 1.8 back. Uh, so not great. Um, also a movie that's a little hard to, uh, to view right now. Really, you can only rent or purchase it on what YouTube and Google play. I think Google play is how I watched it. Yeah. And then there's, there is a Blu-ray out for about 10 bucks, but it's super bare bones, only a trailer and a audio commentary with Jared Harris and John Carpenter, which is a pretty good commentary. Actually, I, I would recommend it. Um, but for, for those of you, including, us uh, who are like, what, what is the ward? Let me just read you the letterbox synopsis, which is like three words longer than the IMDb synopsis, a thriller centered on an institutionalized young woman who becomes terrorized by a ghost. I believe the IMDb synopsis is an institutionalized young woman becomes terrorized by a ghost. So where do we start with this, Jake? Let's, uh, well, I know where I want to start. I think there's a lot to talk about with this movie, but considering I would be surprised if many people listening right now have seen this. I think we generally don't put spoilers aside because, you know, these are older films that we're discussing uh, a lot of times, 20 plus years old, but with this one, I think let's just kind of give broad first impressions and then we will dive into spoilers because I think we've have to dive into spoilers for this one to really get into the meat of it. So all of that said, um, Jake, where do you stand on this movie? I know it is pretty maligned among critics, uh, letterboxed. I think it's average is like 2.5. Um, it's a movie that at best is like, eh, just didn't do much for me. Seems to be the general consensus. I think that I would probably on a letterbox scale, give it between a three and a half and a four stars. Really? And the reason I say that is because I really enjoyed it. I thought that the movie worked. Never did I think it didn't work. And I have a couple nitpicks here and there. Um, but I think that people thought that John Carpenter would make a horror movie today and use today's horror tropes or today's horror language, which is mm -hmm. someone's caught in the house. Let's do the goriest um, gore ever because you know Carpenter has always had those really great kill scenes yeah and he did have a few good ones in this one as well but it is not that um, super um, stylized graphic jump scare kind of thing this it's not, I thought and it's not torture porn it's not torture porn that's the words I'm looking for it's not torture porn he, I like that he managed to make a John Carpenter movie a John mm -hmm. Carpenter horror film and the best one that he has made in a number of years for for the straight up horror genre. Okay. Or a number of films. So coming out a lot stronger than I thought I would having yeah. seen the 5.6 on IMDb. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, 
I was very interested to see where this discussion was going. I am slightly delighted um, to to get into this with you. I okay. So let me let me start out by saying uh, I'm right there with basically all of the criticism of this film. In that um, there are a lot of things that feel kind of old hat, and uh, there's there's not a lot that feels particularly new or inventive. Mm-hmm. But I don't think like that's not exactly Carpenter has often gone back to sort of tried and true standards and he's not afraid to dive into something that you already know that you're already familiar with that Mm -hmm. is maybe a little formulaic and just present it in the way that he is in a way that only he is able to as far as building tension as far as that's, that's what he's really good at. Like he is a, you know, he creates B movies, but he creates B movies very well and better than, you know, and and by B movie, I mean, substance wise, they're, they're not trying to change the world. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, he puts his mark on them and this has, I think this has a whole lot more John Carpenter in it than most of the films from the nineties. Um, Ghost of Mars was sort of a mixed bag. It definitely had more John Carpenter than, uh, say, you know, vampires or children of the children of the corn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Basically, basically. Um, but, uh, this, this really feels like sort of him getting back into his bread and butter swing of just here's a, you know, this is sort of like his 21st century version of something like, um, Prince of Darkness, I think. That's what it feels like to me a little bit. Yeah, it, it, I also could see someone saying, like, if you pumped all of John Carpenter's movies through a, a neural network and had it spit out a new one, <laughs> it would probably look a lot like this because they're trapped in a location. Mm-hmm. It's a, mm-hmm. a horror film. You're uh, knocking knocking people off one at a time. There's, um, If you look at his more recent stuff, like Goes to Mars, strong female lead. Yeah. I think I think it's it's a really interesting film. Um, and very, very true to John Carpenter is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm glad you bring up the, the female lead and I mean, it's really a strong female cast across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I couldn't help but thinking about something like sucker punch while watching this and how there are so many similarities between like girl in a mental institution and being, you know, mistreated and all of these weird things going on, but like this handles these female characters so much better than that movie did. I don't know if you saw Sucker Punch. Thankfully, I can't comment. Okay. Um, it's not good. And every time I say that, the rebuttal that I hear is like, oh, but the graphics were pretty cool or the fight scenes were pretty cool. And it's like, yeah, but no, it's John Hamm is really rapey. Um, it's a bad movie. It's a really bad movie. This, on the other hand, I I mean, you say that it has it feels like a John Carpenter movie, and I think it it does in in a lot of ways. But it also feels like John Carpenter has added some things to his tool belt. Um, this looks like no other John Carpenter movie. I I think mostly because of just the leap in technology from the '90s to 2010 uh, when when he made this film. Like it looks like a modern film, um, and and I like that I like that about it. 
uh, the, and even, you know, he's, he's operating on a shoestring budget of $10 million, um, at, at this point. So there are things like, I don't know if you notice this, but it is in like, it's in anamorphic two, three, five to one, mm-hmm. but actually shot on spherical lenses. So there are no lens flares that go across. There isn't, you don't, you don't have that sort of like top and bottom, uh, focus haze that you get from, from those beautiful, uh, prime Panavision lenses. But, um, he is bringing, he's still bringing his aesthetic to it. Um, and even like I, as much as I miss the fact that we're, we don't get a John Carpenter score here. Um, I like that he's doing something different. The, so guy, guy that did this score, Mark Killian, um, he like, I don't think it stands out like a John Carpenter score generally does. I think the like choral stuff that he has is um, good and fitting, uh, but it also doesn't feel like, you know, it's still better than Ghost of Mars. It's still better than mm-hmm. a few of those things that, or, or even the, uh, the other one that he didn't do uh, memoirs of invisible man. Mm-hmm. I think this sound, this score is much better than, than that and fits along with. So, he is like somehow bridging old school John Carpenter with kind of new school modern horror without without selling out and just going ultra violent or those gimme throwaway tropes that we've come to expect from horror of the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah, and, and I, I could see if you're like a horror just a fanatic and you you consume horror movies this may feel like such a throwback that maybe it's a turn off to you or something along those lines but maybe if you are not as as just uh watching every single thing that comes out uh this would feel like a horror movie in in the best ways yeah um in that it 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 it's unsettling and scary without being that aggressive hyper torture porn or just jump scares in your in your face like trickery i feel like everything was really earned here um and yes that does include a a ghost that materializes but still um very unsettling very good and kept that that tension and aesthetic through it um that uh, you don't see in some other modern horrors how did you feel about like some of the criticism that i read uh on this film was basically like Oh, it's Shyamalan, like it's doing a Shyamalan twist, but without any real like effort put into it. And a decade after that was something that really got audiences. What do you, I mean, you seem to really like this film rebuttal. Ah, suck it. Like <laughs> Seriously, you can't own a, a plot device. You can't own. Uh, but I, I think the criticism is that it's just like, it kind of felt like his heart wasn't in it as it's not it's not invested in like getting you on the rails the whole way to the twist uh, i disagree i i i i i have not gone back and rewatched it but i, I was good enough with it although i did kind of see it coming Or did it? Or didn't it? I don't know. Spoiler alert! Here come the spoilers alert! Close your ears if you don't want to hear a spoiler alert right now. 
I will say this was my second watch preparing to watch it for um, this discussion. And I actually liked it more the second time. And I had a similar experience to uh, seeing the prestige actually in like the first time I saw the prestige, I was like, it was pretty good. It was fine. Like I saw the twist coming. Um, and then I thought, yeah, this isn't a movie that I need to see again. I know the twist. I know them. Mm-hmm. And then you watch pres- the prestige again and you realize like, it's actually better knowing where things are going than it is being strung along with mystery. And I think the ward is definitely like the, the ward on the whole is such a, was such a misrepresented film in all ways. And I think it misrepresents itself even um, because I think as a sort of exploration of personal trauma and of a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of dark things that Carpenter is exploring here that are, it gets pretty, you know, it gets pretty rough, but it's also, this is the sort of thing that you need the vessel of horror to, um, to get you through it. I mean, it's kind of, it reminded me of like the Babadook in that, in that sense. I think the Babadook is a much better film than this, but, um, you know, the self-destruction, the trauma, all of these, all of these dark things, like if you were to approach it just as a drama, it would be so bleak that it would be impossible to to get through. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is you can't market this film correctly without spoiling it. Yeah, because absolutely, it's really a, a psychological thriller in a way. It's a it's a character study. It's all of those things, but not until the twist happens. And that's why I say you can't own that plot device because he's using it. I think in a different way because he's reframing the entire picture. Reframing her as a character, reframing all of these things and those, but you can't talk about it because you will ruin the movie. But if somebody gets into it, it's like, ah, that's just a boring horror movie and turns it off or something along those lines, they're going to miss that reward at the end. Or if they just mentally check out because, ah, this isn't scary enough for me, something along those lines. Well, and I will say, I don't think this is a, this is a perfectly meticulously made film by any means, like at all. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rough little spots in it. And there's even places where, you know, this is clocking in at 88 minutes. Um, I bet you there's a longer cut out there somewhere. And there are places where it feels like, oh, something was probably probably chopped out there. Like, um, I think it's the, I think it's the, which actually is probably my favorite scene, the um, little dance scene to Run Baby Run. Mm-hmm. The way that scene ends is sort of abrupt and just sort of like a, dissolved transition into Amber Heard's character is kind of rummaging through the files and the drugs and everything. And then the crazy one kind of comes in and helps her in the office. And then the, the bitchy one comes up and is like, you're going to get in trouble. Um, there was a really rough transition there. And there's a few of those little places throughout where it's like, I bet something, I bet we're missing something. I bet we're missing like, and ultimately it's probably exposition they cut out or something, but it's not a seamless film. Um, that said, I I think it plays really well on a second viewing and it plays really well viewing it from the perspective 
of you know knowing knowing all of how all the pieces come together because the way that those characters interact and I will say like this I love this cast which I was not expecting mm-hmm. I love the way the I love the way the interactions play out between Roy who's sort of like the orderly and I forget what the the nurse's name was but it plays out so well because they are in a way the cliched like she's the you know bitchy nurse ratchet sort of mm-hmm. character but she's not it's it and, and that's the thing that i find interesting in really like diving into this it's sort of the entire film is a cool shot effect in a way mm-hmm. like depending on your the way that your mind frames it depends on what you see and so a lot of the stuff that felt trite isn't actually there it's mm-hmm. not actually like if, if you watch it from the perspective of, oh, okay, this is actually Alice and Kristen is a piece mm-hmm. of and all of this, like all of that immediately disappears. Um, I mean, there's, there's the scene where Sarah comes and tries to seduce Roy in the bathroom. Any other horror movie, he's going to like unbuckle his belt and be like, let's go at it, lady. Um, mm-hmm. And what does he do? He pushes her away and he's like, no, you're crazy. Get away from me. I told you, never going to date you. And there, I mean, so I, I think, you know, Carpenter deserves a lot more credit than, than he's generally getting for this film, not flawless, but very good. Agreed. I do think, uh, to me, this is if, uh, like, I don't know if you agree with this, but this is psycho filtered through Carpenter. This is similar, similar. There's a multiple personality. There's a shower scene. I know that's really superficial, but also, it's it's got at least psycho for the first part has that that female lead that we're following around this does yeah. as well um i i just feel like it's that same sort of psycho thriller going on it's a horror but there's there's all of that it even it even has the uh let me explain the exact plot to you scene at the end yeah <laughs> that psycho has which when i had that same feeling watching this as i did with psycho which is just like i got it bro i understand I, I knew I knew it five minutes ago. We're good. It's unfortunate that we had to get that exposition dump. At least it's like it's not quite as um I well, I guess it it's because it comes when it does, it feels like maybe all the air is just let out at the very mm-hmm. end and there's nothing to build build back up on versus mm-hmm. something like Prince of Darkness, where mm-hmm. you basically get a giant exposition dump in the middle. Yeah. And then you're able to like but but what that serves to do is say like okay now it's a zombie movie from here forward yeah. Yeah. um and so you get to sort of get past that and just have the fun with whereas this is like oh let me explain the thing that if you couldn't figure it out it's a little it is detrimental and um i mean i i i do think of all the characters Jared Harris's doctor what stringer um his that that character's probably the weakest of of the bunch uh because he's just that stand in let me slowly tell you things let me you know give you the information that you need to keep moving um which is unfortunate but i don't think i don't think it's to the entire detriment of the film i think the film still works on the whole because he's such a small piece of it also i thought he i thought he did a good job uh in that role like nothing, nothing crazy great or anything like that. But just, uh, can, can you be Donald Pleasance? Can you, uh, 
Can can you do that? Yeah, I can handle that. He's he's a lot softer than uh than Loomis though. He's not he's not a cynic. He's not like I don't think he's going to tell any kid to get his ass off the off the porch. No, no, but I I I will say this um on on that same note. Uh one of the things I thought hap- that I thought would have been nice to have happened in this movie and also terrible at the same time. I don't know where I really land on this. So when Kristen and I think it's Emily are breaking out of the asylum and uh, and and running around. They go through the morgue and all that stuff. I kind of expected or thought that maybe they would like free all the other inmates, and then we would see <laughs> Michael Myers escaping <laughs> from the ward. I know that it's different. I know that. Oh man, that's that's a whole different movie. But I actually, I mean, it, it would take a lot to make that work. But mm-hmm. I'm not opposed to like the because I mean what you're describing if you expand it further kind of reminds me of like the playfulness that we got from Carpenter post Halloween for several movies where like he's naming all the characters after his friends and mm-hmm. there's all these little nuggets um, that could have that could have actually been really nice and fun I'm sure I'm sure people would have complained like crazy about it but i think that's another thing that i like about carpenter i think he's a guy who is not afraid to not take himself too seriously Mm -hmm. um and not to say that we necessarily see that in in this it's um he's pretty invisible here other than like his basic tropes of like uh, the way this film ends is actually right in line Mm -hmm. very much right in line with what you expect of a john carpenter film yes the like the worldview of this film is on point and i really appreciate that i think that if that's the last thing we see from carpenter if that's the end of his last movie i'm okay with that because it still has that that master of horror kind of touch to it yeah of him of him just he he knows how to scare you he knows what should happen i will say i had a well i like I still think Roy has really terrible bedside manner. Um, he's, you know, he's just not compassionate. But I did have a lot more empathy for him this time around because, like, I mean, he gets bit, he gets hit, he gets like. There's very much a like. She is a lot to deal with. Each yeah. of those, each of those personalities puts him through a different ringer, and so there is a bit of a just like, oh, okay, it's my job. I'll. I'll do what I have to do, but I'm not going to be nice to you because you're not nice to me ever. And you don't appreciate any of this. Um, so when uh, Kristen's running around and she gets out up the elevator and everything, like it's basically a, like his worst day at work ever. It's like, that's what the movie <laughs> actually is. If you know what's up, it's just like, Oh, not this again. Do I really? Have, oh, I'm too old for this shit is what like, you expect him to be like, I empathize with it. It's like, Oh no, this is a really like, he's not the bad guy who's after trying to like pin her down. He's, he's having a really bad day at work. Yeah. Um, so the reason I can't go higher than this on this film, aside from just kind of limits of this film. So it came out in 2010. Do you know what else came out in 2010? Shutter Island came out in 2010. Peterson Hill brought this up when I think when I asked, a while back if you'd watched the ward yet. And basically he basically said, now that we're in spoilers, we can, I guess we're spoiling shutter Mm -hmm. Island as well, but very similar to the ultimate. Um, I, I have problems with both. Yeah. 
And uh, I mean, also when I saw Shutter Island, I was like, oh, Inception just came out. <laughs> that one starred Leonardo DiCaprio as a guy who uh-huh. may or may not um, be going through things because of trauma of losing his wife. Mm-hmm. And like very, yeah, no, very I, similar, you know. I know, and I actually think Shutter Island is a much better movie than I gave it credit for the first time I watched it. I I really enjoy Shutter Island. It's better than it's better than I thought it was. It's not. Uh, it's still at least second tier Scorsese for me. That's that's okay. That's fine. But I, I guess what I'm saying is both of these are similar, and it's tough to judge movies when they come out sometimes because yeah. after time has passed, you can watch it more in a vacuum. Where when you go to see movies, you kind of compare it to what you've seen lately, and what you've what what's new and what's happening and trends and all of those other things. It, would it matter that this movie feels a little dated if you're watching it ten years later? No, because you can watch it alongside all the other John Carpenter movies, and it's really good and fits in with his canon. I mean, that's kind of the story of John Carpenter's movies, though. Yeah, his films in general. I mean, there are some exceptions. But in general, age pretty darn well. And I think I think this this is in that camp of a film that that ages well, that it doesn't matter when it was made because um, the craft is still there. He and and the other thing is that I think, you know, some of those mid to late 90s films, it didn't feel like he really cared about the movies. Mm -hmm. It feels like he cares about this one. He cares about what he's what he's making. It's a smaller scale, but he. He cares that he's making it a suspenseful um, little scary movie. And honestly, I think it's kind of more suspenseful when you know what's going on in in a very different way. It's not trying to do the like, ooh, where's the boogeyman thing? Mm -hmm. Because the I mean, it's it's sort of a ghost story where the ghost is not the like the ghost is coming from inside the house. The ghost, the, the ghost is coming from inside the house because the ghost is you yeah, because, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and so it's this thing. That's why, like, comparing it to the Babadook, um, it has that, like, very personal touch to it, which is just a different style of horror that, honestly, we don't often get something that analyzes and, and approaches from that that perspective. I don't know. I, I would say if you've seen this movie, give it a second shot um, and... It's maybe we shouldn't have even said spoilers because honestly, knowing all of the twisty stuff going in might ease you up a little bit to just, you know, get down to the nitty gritty of what the movie is actually doing. Yeah, it's it's uh, interesting. And talking about John, John Carpenter caring here, I, I saw some of the things that made me think he cared and some of the things that I saw from previous movies that made me think he didn't care. Um, I'll talk about both of those and then kind of come back around to it. First thing, those long shots down the hallway, those long corridor shots yep. are it's John Carpenter as it comes and it opens up with them and it immediately sets the mood. Mm-hmm. No one I, does that better than him. I love I love the way this movie transitions into the title. That, yes. That creep backwards and then we go through the... And that, that was very much a sort of thing of the time. You know, these these titles that kind of kinetically feel like they're in the space, you know, I think like zombie land or mm-hmm. um, stuff like that, but it's Spider-Man. Uh, yeah. But it's yeah. handled in a subtle enough way that uh, it's still like, it doesn't feel like it's overshooting. Um, it's just still a John Carpenter title because it still goes to yes. just like stark black and white. Um, 
it feels right. It feels and good. I, it, and I thought it felt it it felt like it fit in in a way that he maybe would have done that in other movies if the technology would have been there. It mm-hmm. didn't feel like he was just taking advantage of the technology. See Escape from L.A. or something like that. Yeah, he, he was doing something that that felt like it. The technology was realizing his vision, not he was just using the technology. Yeah, Th- those are things where it really looked like he cared. At first, I was thinking, oh man, I, it feels like he doesn't care quite as much when he's doing that dumb dissolve between the same scene three different times to show sort of time passing, but only like an extra minute of time passing. Like it's not like all day passed. The ghosts of Mars drugs dissolve. No, the the he did it a lot in vampires. Like they walk into a, or I guess it was in a in in vampires and Ghost of Mars. It, so yeah, I couldn't, they were doing two different he, things. Yeah, I couldn't tell if he liked it or he had to speed scenes up. But the more I think about this, I wonder how much the studio was like, this movie's not testing well, and it needs to be eighty eight minutes long. It mm-hmm. can't be a hundred. It can't be a hundred minutes long. Find stuff to cut. Cut things out of some scenes, just shorten things. And he's like, oh, I've done this before. Da, da, da. I mean, I it's it's not as bad as vampires by any means. No, ways. it's not. No, no. No, no way. In no way is it as bad as that. But it but it brought back some some feelings that I had from that. Some PTSD. Yes. <laughs> Well, Jake, that sound would mean that it's time to score the score. And how would we score the score if we were scoring the score? Out of a score, which is 20. But as uh, previously mentioned, John Carpenter didn't score this film. Uh, It was scored by Mark Killian. So we're going to have to pass by this segment uh, because there's nothing to talk about here. Uh, I can't say anything about it. I can't say that I thought it was fine. I thought it was better Better than fine. Yeah, it did. What it, it could have been better. It 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 could have been a carpenter score. It could have been ins- better. Instead, it was f- fine. But it did things that Carpenter wouldn't have done that I thought worked well. Also, I don't know what Carpenter would have done because the last score we get from him is New Metal Ghost of Mars. So I don't even know what to think. <laughs> would it I mean, have been a dubstep score? Who knows? Nah, man. Check out Lost Themes. Volume one and two. If if I uh, if I started at the uh, at the tenth um, company splash screen before the movie, will it sync up to? Uh... Yeah, the third time you say you see a bigger boat logo, <laughs> um, that's that's when you drop the needle. Okay. <laughs> okay, moving on to Clash of the Carpenter, which uh, I mean, this is more or less. I think I think we are probably going to have a little bit more if we get in those bonus episodes. But for Canon John Carpenter, this is, I guess, the final one. All right. I guess we should uh, we should get into it. Okay. So I guess just a real quick primer. In every episode of The Carpenter Shop, we take a badass from the film we're discussing and put them up against the reigning badass from this long tournament of man-on-man, man-on-machine, team-on-team, whatever it happens to be. Uh, from each film that we discussed. So we began with the thing. So naturally, Kurt Russell's R.J. McCready was our victor by, de- by default. And he went through and first he went up against Victor Wong's Professor Barak in Prince of Darkness. 
defeated him. And then defeated the creepy innkeeper, Mrs. Pickman, a.k.a. Happy Gilmore's grandma from In the Mouth of Madness. And then he defeated bomb number 20 from Darkstar. But then R.J. McCready's reign ended and we had a lot of turnover. So R.J. McCready was defeated by The Shape from Halloween. Who was then defeated by Christine from Christine. Who was then allegedly defeated by the whole crew at Precinct 13 from Assault on Precinct 13. But I feel like the the Christine block might have moved there at the end. So I'm not convinced Christine's gone. We're just going to have to do a whole recount. Then <laughs> then the crew from not Precinct 13 and Assault on Precinct 13, they were defeated by Blake and his band of, sa- of sword-wielding sailor lepers in the fog. But then finally, Kurt Russell returned to the brawl as Snake Plissken in Escape from New York and claimed the throne from Blake and co., and he went on to defeat Jeff Bridges' Starman from Starman by helping him return to his own planet. But then he was soon defeated by Jack Burden in an epic three-way Russell on Russell on Russell tussle with Burden and a mysterious figure who looked an awful lot like R.J. McCready. And then Jack Burton faced Nada from They Live in the longest-running knockdown drag-out brawl of the Clash. But Burden ultimately won, beating Nada into submission or something. Yeah, I don't remember how that one ended. Uh, then he defeated Sam Neill's cold-blooded CIA assassin, Dr. David Jenkins, in Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Then he beat Christopher Reeves, Dr. Alan Chaffee, in Village of the Damned. And then he teamed up with perhaps the best part of vampires, the Padre, from John Carpenter's Vampires, to fight said vampires. But ultimately, he had to perform a mercy killing on his new best friend after the Padre was bitten by a vampire himself. It was sad. So sad. Jack Burton then defeated Lieutenant Melanie Ballard on a space train from Ghost to Mars. Uh, which now brings us to Jack Burton B. I, I mean, it's got to be Kristen, right? No, it would, it, it would be Alice. I don't think so. Kristen the whole is the, crew. Oh, he's going to fight everyone. So Sarah, Emily, Alice, Kristen. I'm leaving some out. There's a Zoe. Uh, yeah. Um, are there any more? Uh, Iris, Zoe, Iris. Sarah, yeah. Iris yeah. was the one I was missing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's going to fight all of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's by fighting Alice, he does fight all of them. <laughs> okay. Fair. Is this like a, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world scenario? <laughs> or? Um, possibly, possibly. Uh, I, I, so here's the first thing I think is going for him. I don't think any of those girls have green eyes, but also, uh, he has been known to be pretty good at fighting, like paranormal entities. Yeah. And, and I mean, really it seemed like all it took to kill Alice sort of was a, was a, um, an ax to the gut. Well, but ultimately, you know, Alice and Kristen and Zoe and Emily and Shruthi Pinamonani and all of these girls who are, uh, you know, ultimately make up the Alice, um, you know, the, all of the personalities of, of Alice, they ultimately are sort of self-destructive themselves. They, they implode upon themselves, as made very obvious in the film. So I think Burden can probably hang back and allow a lot of that to happen. Yeah, in, yeah there, there's some internal division. They're not all pulling the rope in the same direction. No, not at all. I mean, yeah. Emily is sort of the joker in that, like, she would like to watch the world just burn. Um You've got, yeah, you've got, everyone has their own motives. I think Sarah's going to try to seduce Jack Burden, and we know that, like, that's not going to work. It's, 
Yeah, I'm I'm standing beside. He's pretty darn good in a fight against the paranormal. I like that. I like that they can't get they can't get on the same page. There's not not much he has to do. He probably wouldn't straight up fight a woman. I, I think he he kind of just hangs back and uh and and the multiple personalities coalesce into just Alice or maybe also Kristen or maybe just Kristen and uh, but it pretty much resolves itself. Yeah, it's kind of like one of those battle royales where you just try to stay away from the brawl and let it take care of itself. And ultimately, when everyone holds on to each other and jumps out of a like third story office window, you win by default. Yeah, it's a lot like my strategy in Super Smash Brothers. Play Kirby and hide. So that's for now, at, at the very least, that's where we land with, of course, Kurt Russell being our, our victor um, of, of this whole Clash in the Carpenter silliness. I'm, I'm glad that more or less we are done going through this exhaustively long list. Yes, and I'm, I'm also glad that we hear George Thurgood in the distance <laughs> because Christine is not gone. I, I still protest that one. This Always. was a very, very fun thing to do, and I wonder if this, this type of tradition can continue into the Magnificent Andersons. Uh, I mean, we'll we'll see. I mean, maybe maybe John Carpenter will come up and say, "Oh, Christine too." That's the next movie I'm making. If that happens, I will allow Christine to come back. We will yes. we will hold an emergency Clash of the Carpenter episode just uh, just to allow your. I mean, it's you're hanging on to your nostalgia. I think that's what's really going on here. Okay, I hear that, but also they can't make a Christine sequel because there's no way. That the the character uh, that sold the the boys Christine didn't get caught in the Me Too movement. Moving on to the Carpenter canon. So Jake, now like after this discussion, I am legitimately curious where you are going to put the Ward. Is it a Carpenter classic, which is pretty self explanatory? Is it a deep dive, which is uh you know not not a pristine John Carpenter film, but one if you're a fan you should definitely check out. Or is it? I'm assuming not just for Johnny's mommy. It is not just for Johnny's mommy. In no way is it just for Johnny's mommy. Now, I watched it and I walked away and I was like, ah, deep dive, but upper deep dive. And I've been trying to decide if it's a very low classic, the the, the bottom classic or mm. the, the top deep dive. Yeah. Be- because it's something that I feel like if you like Carpenter, you should watch without a doubt. It's something you need to see. It's good to see him in a more modern environment doing what he does still still has the chops to pull it off but if you're not a carpenter fan you may not enjoy it quite as much but it is really rewarding after you've seen the rest of his uh filmography so i think i have to put it as an upper deep dive we're pretty much simpatico on this this is very much sort of the uh thought process that i went through as well ultimately i mean i i could make the argument for carpenter classic in that um, it feels essential to understanding John Carpenter as a whole, but at the same time, it's so it's, you know, it'd be one thing if this was where he turns a corner and then continues to make films after this, because this is the last film, it's harder to say Carpenter classic because it only represents itself. It doesn't represent where he goes from there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it's it's not uh, um, critical to understanding him as a director. Yeah. It it yeah. does show that, oh, this is something else that he is capable of mm-hmm. that you 
visually and because it feels more modern while also still feeling very much like that throwback sort of style that he's always had. Um, so although, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same place where I'm going very top of deep dive, probably very upper deep dive at the very least, um, where it is, I think it's, you know, I, I think it's absolutely worthy of your time. Um, it is a, like, it's not a movie without its flaws, which I've said a number of times now, but it is better than people give it credit for. I think it's a lot better than people give it credit for. I do think over time it will find its audience. People will, and maybe, you know, people who saw it and said, ah, no, the ward, I saw that movie. That was bad. And then they watch it again and they, you know, remember enough to sort of know the twists and the, the twists don't matter. Uh, maybe they come at it with a different perspective and they finally appreciate it. Who knows? The thing I will say is I hope it does catch new life and it's not just that it is ignored in the way that it is. But if you are going to go dig up one old John Carpenter movie to watch in the mouth of madness, I, I can't say it enough times. Go watch in the mouth of madness in the mouth of madness. It's I mean, we've been saying it basically since we started more or less. Um that's that is the discovery of this entire series and made the like if that was the only thing that we saw that was worth a damn that we hadn't seen before it still would have all been worth it yeah but there was so much that we we i'm so glad that we watched there was probably six or seven movies that i'm really really glad uh that either i didn't know i had missed or didn't know existed or 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 whatnot i'm i'm really glad we did this uh, but the ward is definitely making that list of things I did not expect would be this good. And and Benson, Arizona is going on every mixtape I ever make from here into perpetuity in the future. Yeah, best the best way to start a road trip. The best way to start a road trip, hands down. Spoilers are done. Spoilers are done. Turns out Rosebud was only a sled. All right, Chris. So when the Midnight Warriors sit down to finally watch the ward or reassess the ward and they go to pop open a cold one, what should it be? And please tell me you've selected an amber that turns out to not really be an amber. I, I should have considered an amber, but I didn't. Um, I went with one that uh, I had actually picked up just based on the name, thinking like, oh, this will probably pair with a Carpenter movie at some point. And I think it's actually very appropriate here. It is called Wake Up Dead. It is a nitro. It's You can you can find it in nitro and not nitro. Get the nitro. Uh, it comes from Left Hand Brewing Company. And this is a Russian Imperial Stout clocking in at 10.2% ABV and a 45 IBU. So a um, little, little bitter, not terribly bitter, a little heavy being a Russian Imperial Stout. Um, they describe it as a super smooth trifecta of cocoa, dried fruits, and licorice flavors. Um, now, I will say, I like one, I am a sucker for a Russian Imperial Stout. One of my favorite styles. Um, because you know me, Jake, I like a real boozy beer. And... Russian Imperial, Imperial Stouts are always, by default, going to be pretty boozy. Um, I also like a nitro because you you can at least probably understand this. Uh, a nitro beer 
has well it has nitrogen in it and and it it's more the carbonation is more bubbly than little little tiny bubbles like like a nitro cold brew so instead of carbonation it has nitronation it has nitronation perfect um and and so it's it's like very creamy you can you can just feel like it it actually takes on uh it's almost like a liquid mousse in your mouth the nitro adds its own flavor but then you also have a mouthfeel um that's really wonderful so i was pretty sold on this from the get-go and then i was like oh wake up dead that'll that'll go well with something john carpenter right i will say this is just based on the description and everything this is a beer that is a slight disappointment um in being that well and i'm only saying that in this is a shoe in for me this is like a something like this with this description, this pedigree, I love Left Hand. I love their nitros. Um, this is a shoe in for me to be like, oh yeah, this is one of the best beers I've had all year. Um, it's not, it's not quite there, but it's still a very good beer. The I think they oversell sort of the complexity of it. It's definitely more on the um, cocoa than the dried fruits and the licorice. It's a little bit flatter than. Um, they sell it as, but still a really good Russian Imperial stout. Very sippable. Uh, like I said, the nitro is wonderful. Um, so I mean, by all means, pick it up and reassess or watch for the first time, the ward, drink this with it, grab yourself a pint glass. These come in pint sized cans. Um, and just flip. I don't know if you've ever, uh, well, I guess you probably haven't Jake, uh, with, with nitro, you want to, instead of very delicately pouring the beer, you want to just flip the can over entirely and just pour it straight out as hard as possible into the glass to really to activate act, all to, that to yeah, activate or, it. Yeah. And, and so do not sip this out of the can. You can, but I would, I would say don't get that real creamy foam on it and just tip the can vertical 180 degrees, let it all pour out and sit down, sip, enjoy watch the ward reassess and say, Hmm, it's actually a, it's a nice swan song. So the ward is a little hard to find these days, but you can rent or purchase it on YouTube or Google play. Or if you're still a fan of physical media, you can pick up the bare bones Blu-ray disc for about 10 bucks. And I'm sure there's still a few dusty copies at the bottom of a pre-owned bin at Hollywood video. War starts at midnight brought to you by Hollywood video. Got a hot take on this film or our discussion of it? Hit up our assistant, Henry Swanson, and he'll relay the message to us. Reach out at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com or Twitter at WSAMpod. Or you could even leave a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Yeah, and I'm going to challenge you. If you've seen this movie before, like at the time it came out, please let us know, one, why? Why did you go and see it? And two, what did you think then? And have you revisited it? And what do you think now? I'm super curious because I did not get to see it when it came out. So I really would like to talk to anybody who did see it at the time, maybe with some high expectations, and have you revisited it since? There will also be a pop quiz. Yes. for <laughs> Multiple choice. But just so you know, Jake, Jake is entrapping you into a pop quiz right now. Yes, yes, 100%. And, and the right answer is Alice to all of them, by the way. You might think it's something else, but it's with Alice the whole time. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. Three-point-two 
from the driveway of my house to your apartment where I am waiting now. Come on, don't think night's young. Let's go. NYC, Portland, Austin, and I, maybe not. All right, Jake, it feels good. We haven't had a really rad recommendation segment in a while. Uh, and it, it feels real good to, to stretch out and say, you know, here's, here's something, something else to enjoy a little, a little extra, a little, little dollop on top. What do you have to recommend this time? So I was thinking of recommending Shutter Island. That was, that was what I thought right away. But I'm sure everybody has seen and rewatched Shutter Island since it came out. I have. Yep. And so instead, I wanted to go with just something I've watched recently, something I thought was crazy. And so completely unrelated to the stuff we talked about. I'm talking about Netflix's documentary on the Fire Festival entitled Fire, The Greatest Party That Never Happened. Not to be confused with the Hulu documentary called fire something fire fraud which is which is different uh although i'm sure they both feature ja rule very prominently (laughs) because he is a major player in this in this insane story about the fire festival a major player in like is he interviewed or just the the fact that he factors into the story quite a bit Oh, no, he factors into the story. And also they were just like, when they were setting this stuff up, they were like, bring the cameras, record everything. And they have all this footage of actually like planning the fire festival, like the original like ideas that some of them were having. I don't think I don't think uh, Ja Rule is involved at all in this, Mm -hmm. like from a from a negative standpoint. I think he just hooked his horse to the wrong wagon and this wagon was a a doomed music festival to to quote owen wilson wow <laughs> yeah it it is it is it is one of those insane deteriorating shit shows that <laughs> only come around so often and it is just a bunch of competent people with an, a lying incompetent leader and the refusal to accept uh impending clear failure we're we're still talking about the fire festival movie. Yes, yes. I'm <laughs> now, Jake. I've only like sort of at a glance seen some sort of. I, this has come under a little bit of criticism um, for I don't know the the facts of of it or do you know anything about this? Um, I I haven't seen I haven't like vetted the facts. I I just remember this from when it happened, and it yeah, all sure. tracks along with everything that I experienced through looking at social media pictures of the cheese sandwich they gave people at this supposedly luxury right. music festival. Right. It really hits a second 
like level this documentary when they actually get to the the island that they have to to do all these you know hosts of this music festival on and all they can get in time are hurricane tents like <laughs> tents that were left over from a hurricane that came through oh to, boy yeah yeah it's bad it's real bad did this so, guy have a history of planning events or just no nobody ambition? there he's the he ed wood of of music festivals no, he, Ed Wood was earnest. This guy is a, a fraudster through and okay. through. Okay, okay. Um, it is it is true insanity like I haven't seen in a while. It's one of those those good documentaries. Um, um, not one of those that, that I like that are really like specific. This is so broad, but so good at the same time. Chris, what do you have to recommend? Uh, I'm just going to recommend the last thing that I saw, and I actually left the house to see it. I saw on the big screen for the first time in over a decade, uh, Rashomon. Really? Yeah, the Akira Kurosawa film uh, from 1950. Sort of, I mean, more or less, I think his breakout film, Into the West. Um, This is, I think this is his first appearance at Cannes. For those who perhaps don't know the story, it's actually pretty simple. It... Uh, this is a film that tells the same story from four different perspectives. And, uh, there's a bandit who's on trial or, um, and, and this is all, this is all being told more or less in, in flashbacks, but a bandit is on trial for the murder of a man. And so the bandit tells his account of what happened. Um, there was a man who was murdered. There was a woman who was raped and the bandit who, uh, was involved in some, some way. So he tells the story. The woman tells a story. The ghost of the murdered man tells a story. And all of them contradict each other and conflict. And um, it's, you know, it, it's a movie that it really struck me when I first saw it back in probably, I think, I mean, freshman year of college, probably first semester of college. Is that right, Jake? Yeah, first semester. Every time I revisit it, it grows on me more and more, which is exactly what I sort of have grown to expect from Kurosawa. Uh, this time around, I was struck by just how Herzogian it all is. Um, very, like, I could easily see, you know, the the famous quote from Burden of Dreams, where he's talking about the uh, infinite suffering in the in the jungle, the jungle. Um, Sort of like I could easily see him just doing a narration of uh, of Rashomon and talking about how it's all. I mean, because the the basic worldview of this movie is like people uh, are looking out for themselves and it's chaos, more or less. But it does bring a silver lining thread through not to say like, oh, let's put a bow on it, but to say it's all chaos unless we actively choose to not make the world chaotic. Um, and I really, I love the way that he balances that nuance of um, something so bleak with a little bit of hope, but still it's more pragmatic than it is optimistic. I would say um, it's a really like, I mean, watching it again, it felt like in a lot of ways, like watching it for the first time again, just in like, um, there were a lot of, there were a lot of things that kind of like watching the ward again, there were a lot of things that I kind of viewed from a different perspective this time and really 
uh, really appreciate it. this is and this is yes, Lord and Rashomon are just alike, just alike, <laughs> just about the same. Um, and this, of course, has Toshiro Mifune um, in a in a very classic role as the bandit. Also has the Kurosawa regular Takashi Shimura as the woodcutter, who's sort of the the guy recounting everything. Um, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend checking it out. Um, if you have, I highly recommend, uh, revisiting it. Um, Jake, have, you've, you've seen this movie. Do you, do you know if it's, uh, you know if it's any good? Uh, that's not how I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so Thank you. Thank you for taking the bait on that one. That's, <laughs> that's more or less what I wanted. <laughs> Uh, do, do you know that this is not uh, was not my first Kurosawa film? Do you want to guess what my first Kurosawa film was? Oh man, that's surprising. I mean, was it um, was it uh, was it Hidden Fortress? It was not Hidden Fortress. That it, I mean, that seems like an obvious. Yeah, if that's, you that's possible upon. entry point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, no, no. For me, it was uh, Throne of Blood. Really? Yes, thanks to a very good English teacher we had in high school. Okay, who, that makes who, sense. We're watching Macbeth, so or I mean, we're reading Macbeth. We're gonna watch Throne of Blood. Mm-hmm. I was just like, "Wow, this mm-hmm. is really great." That's a lot of arrows. And so <laughs> uh, later, when, when I got to college, and I, I think by that point, I had probably seen Seven Samurai. But uh, and then I, I saw Rashomon, and and hearing Kessner talk about how great Kurosawa is, I was like, "Yes, yes, yeah. he is." And then I deep dived into just everything. You did. You did. Yeah. That that was another thing. The you you mentioning Throne of Blood and uh, Bad Sleep Well in something that I'll probably edit out of uh, the actual episode. Um, that was something else that I noticed is there. There's a just a tiny bit of Shakespeare. I feel in Rashomon, um, and you you get you get Shakespeare throughout his career, whether it's a direct adaptation or just in narrative strokes. And I think there is a little bit of that here as well. Um, so yeah, check it out. There's a beautiful, gorgeous Cartier in Blu-ray. It was, you know, remastered. Um, I think about a decade ago. Uh, also available on Canopy if you have that uh, free library um, app accessible, and it's on Amazon and iTunes to rent. I would actually say it's as iconic of a work as a Shakespeare work, which is a really bizarre statement, but it introduced this concept of relative um point yeah. or point of view it is it's emblematic both of the modern time but also the human condition and and just humanity in general and it's that iconic of a work and that um broad and specific and meaningful all at the same time i really love that movie well and and people use it to describe that sort of perspective shift mm-hmm. as as a like it's a shorthand for um for describing that change in perspective between people. Yeah. And, and for the idea that in all of, uh, all of literature and art that it took us until 1950 to come up with the iconic work on multiple perspectives is just yeah. kind of mind blowing to me. Well, but it, it also kind of makes sense just from a, it is, it is such a cinematic. It is, it is something that I think is most effectively told cinematically because you can, visually express it and express the differences Mm -hmm. in a way that you get nuance that you wouldn't get otherwise. So it makes sense to me.
And that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. Thank you all so much for joining us on this ride. We will have bonus episodes coming out in the future, so you know, stay tuned to either The Carpenter Shop feed or subscribe to the War Starts at Midnight feed. That's the best way to get everything that we're doing, both uh, any Carpenter Shop bonuses, also regular War Starts at Midnight episodes, also the brand new Magnificent Anderson stuff. It'll, it'll all be there. Subscribe to that. Um, thank you so much. There's, and you know, this is episode number 18 in the carpenter shop. There was a whole lot more. If you just joined us, you know, in the middle, there was a whole lot to explore. We had so much fun doing this. Thank you for coming along with us. Um, this was great and very rewarding. Yeah, I'm very happy with what we were able to produce. I'm very happy to have the opportunity to even watch all these films and just focus on it. It helped me focus and like fully appreciate John Carpenter. Um, and now at work, I'm known as like, oh yeah, that guy really likes John Carpenter. And I'm so okay with that. That is, that is totally fine. All right, folks. Well, we don't know what we're going to be back with next time, but stay tuned. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person in the gym who's always listening to podcasts and rate subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you're the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at porkchopexpress at carpentercast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who simply loves the sound of your own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The incredible Carpenter Shop theme song, which I'm really going to miss when we hang up the Michael Myers masks here. Uh, was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon in 3. Find them at dragonin3.com. You got a lot of great stuff. Uh, our spoiler alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash The Taylor Machine. And shout out to Ben Rector for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at benrectormusic.com. He's got a brand new tour coming up. Go check him out. He's wonderful. Thanks for listening, folks. Sleep tight, sugar. Sugar.